Hey everyone, Mike here with your first episode of Talking Media Studies. All right, so so what is this podcast? Uh, really, this this podcast allows me to provide feedback to you know the the forty plus students that are in, that are in class on a weekly basis. Um, in the past, I used to write students kind of a this kind of long, very long email. But I realized it's probably not the most interesting thing to read a very long email from, from a professor. Um, and so I was thinking about what would be a way that I could highlight student comments, provide some kind of response, and generally just sort of provide another way of talking about the material in an easy to access way. And I figured, oh, a podcast would be great. You can kind of listen to it while you're working out or going on a walk or cooking dinner or what have you. So yeah, that's really what this podcast series is about. Basically, I'll be yeah, responding to students, um, reiterating important points and clarifying difficult ideas, uh, some of which will certainly show up on the, on the exams that will be coming up. Um, and also just as a way for me to, once I've read and graded all the comments for the week, a way for me to discuss common patterns that I see amongst student, student um, writing, um, if they're common problems or points of confusion among students, I can address those. So I find this podcast to just be a really easy, kind of a fun way to, to deal with that. So I hope, I hope you enjoy it. Um, yeah, so in this episode, I'll be discussing your comments from Gene Twenge's article, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Right, This very uh, clickbaity, kind of dramatic headline, um, which I really enjoyed reading, by the way. I think all of you did a really great job. For your first post and it took me a while to get through them honestly it took me many hours but I, I enjoyed reading and grading those um so yeah let me just say a, a word about a strong post because you know this this class just began and many of you are maybe even brand new to college or relatively new to college or maybe you just haven't had a class where you do a lot of writing so a strong post for this class will generally be something that is is well written meaning it demonstrates clear effort and thought and there aren't many grammar mistakes or spelling mistakes uh, a strong post yet uh, generally should directly reference the assigned material um, you can do this through quoting the original source by drawing on specific examples obviously as i mentioned trying to uh, ar articulate or rephrase or include what you think is the author's main argument or thesis um, all those kinds of things are really important to do in a strong post. Um, also make sure that you answer all of the assigned parts of a, of a prompt. So I noticed a couple students didn't answer all of the kind of bulleted or numbered parts of the discussion prompt that I wrote for you. So that's always, always make sure you read that carefully. And yeah, generally speaking, you know, think of it for, almost from my perspective, right? As I go through and grade these, and there are many of them, right? I'm looking really for obvious and kind of clear evidence that a student has read and thought about the assigned material in a meaningful way. And yeah, and it's honestly, it's usually pretty obvious to me when a student has or has not. So always think about, you know, what would this kind of writing look like to the professor? A good question to ask. The final thing I wanted to mention um, in terms of the kind of mechanics of the assignment is you also have for your discussion prompts, as you know, you have your class community grid. And I think most students have figured this out. A couple students 
usually takes them a week or so to kind of to to get this uh, to figure this out or to to start doing this. Um, so yeah, the class community grade is really all it is is when students when students in your group post their written responses, all you need to do is write a reply to at least two to three other group members. And it's also really important that in your response, that you, you in your reply to your group members, that you're going beyond saying, oh, I like what you said, or that's a great point. You can say those things, but you really need to, you really need to work on a more substantive, thoughtful comment. Um, it doesn't have, have to be super long, but it needs to go beyond, you know, I liked what you said. Most of you are doing a great job with that, so nothing to worry about. All right, let's get into the article. Okay, so the reason I assigned this article was really just because I thought it would be an interesting warm-up for class um, to give students some practice reading and evaluating claims and research related to media studies. It's not necessarily related to what we're going to be ta- or what we, we will be talking about um, in the next couple of weeks, because as, as you might have noticed, in the next uh, two or three weeks, we're going to be going into a media history unit. But I just thought this article, which uh, was published in 2017, would be kind of an interesting Thing for students to start out just as an exercise to practice reading and evaluating academic or academic-ish writing. You know, in this article, um, when it was published in 2017, it got a lot of attention. It was a very provocative article, and certainly the title that was given to it was, um, I think, designed with that in mind. And so, yeah, you know, some people really, I think some, some older readers, it seemed, uh, resonated with this article a lot and it was shared and talked about on cable news and and shared by people on social media. Um, maybe some younger folks maybe were a little bit more critical of the article and everything in between. But anyways, it was, yeah, it was a provocative article and brings up, I think it encapsulates a lot of the, a lot of the many concerns and anxieties that many people have about smartphone use, about social media and that sort of thing. Okay, so yeah, that's that's why I picked this particular article. So I think the thing, maybe the, the, the best thing to start out with here is how do you identify an author's thesis? You know, this can be tricky and this is not something you can just automatically learn, but it's really learned through practice. Whenever you, I think one way to start with this is whenever you read an article, this could be an academic journal article, it could be a, a popular press article, something from a magazine, a news article, or it could even be a, a video, a video essay or a documentary you're watching, you should always ask yourself a series of questions, right? First of all, you should ask, you know, why are we reading or watching this? And that's a question that can help you connect it to the class itself. Um, then you should ask, you know, what is this article, once you finish it, you know, what does this article actually say? What does it do? What is its, like, what is its purpose? Why does it exist? And when you read this article, I think, that's one thing you should do, you know, step back and be like, okay, like, why did the Atlantic publish this? Why did Jean Twenge write this? I mean, there's many points that she's making in the article, but I think there is a kind of overall point or argument that's trying to be made here. And that's, that's getting pretty close to what a thesis is. And sometimes 
an author might explicitly say, you know, this is my thesis or main argument, but oftentimes they don't. In this article, there is no point where she really says, like, this is exactly what I'm arguing. So you do have to do some, some kind of detective work here. Um, so, for example, uh, Michael P. wrote, the thesis of this article seems to be that over time, quote-unquote, iGen teens have become less independent and their mental health has become has been negatively impacted by the rise of new technology that seems to be taking over everyone's lives. Yeah, I think this is a this is a really good identification of the thesis by by Michael. This is a good um I think Michael's uh capturing this thesis here this idea that you know there's twinges interested in a particular group of people, this group of young people she calls iGen and how they've kind of lost independence perhaps or that there's a decline in in mental health and that these are being effect uh, caused by um, this rise of new technology, in this case, smartphones and social media. I do think we could expand a little bit on Michael. I think Michael gave us a really great encapsulation of this idea, but I think we could expand on that, expand on that a bit. You know, from, from my perspective, when I read this article, and I kind of stepped, you know, sort of, sort of stood back and thought about, okay, what is this article saying? Um, I think everything he said is right, um, but her... It seems to me that her kind of general point or, or argument is that iGen, right, that she, you know, this group of young people um, that she identifies are, that, that are kind of coming of, coming of age, right, along with smartphones and social media, that iGen is basically failing to socialize properly, right, failing to socialize property, properly and not reaching the, the kind of common indicators or benchmarks of teenagers and young adults, right? This is something that she really focuses on a lot, this kind of generational comparison throughout her article, which many of you pointed out is a little bit, you know, we should, it should raise some, some, some red flags here. You should be a little skeptical about this sort of general uh, generation comparison. Um, and, and that this basically, this failure to socialize um, or this, this, this um, delayed kind of, um, uh, reaching certain socialization benchmarks of teenage teenagers and young adults that she's arguing this is directly attributed to or, you know, the widespread use of smartphones and social media since roughly 2010 to 2012 or starting in that time range. And that, you know, beyond that, that she has this kind of fear, I think, not always spoken, or but it seems to be this kind of fear that ultimately young people are not or will not um become fully autonomous and independent adults. And so, yeah, I think that, that I think Michael's point and maybe a little bit more of what I added there might help encapsulate, um, at least as, as best as I understood it, her, her thesis, you know, this idea that, um, yeah, there's this group of people that are coming of coming of age, uh, along with this new technology of smartphones and social media, and that this technology is, um, basically, um, slowing down or, um, inhibiting their socialization process into autonomous and independent adults, right? So yeah, let's let's get into this. So of course, you know, she provides lots of lots of evidence. Um, you know, skyrocketing rates of uh, teen depression and mental health. Uh, that young people are going out less, socializing in person less, dating less, driving less, working less. You know, all these. I'm not going to go through everything here, but you know, you read the article, you got the idea. And um, I think one 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 sentence or one quote from her that captures as well as her her point her her argument or claim that uh, 18 year olds today act more like 15 year olds used to 
and 15-year-olds today act more like 13-year-olds. So yeah, you can really see in this, this, this sentence her idea that there's this sort of um, delayed socialization or even failure to socialize. And that, I think those are two different things, and we'll, we'll get to that difference. Is it a delayed or is it a failure? She, I think she's never really clear in this article, and that was one of my criticisms, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so yeah, let's start with, uh, let's, let's go on to the, the idea of the credibility of the author here. Uh, one of the questions I had you think about. Patrick H. notes that the author, Jean Twenge, is very credible. She has a PhD in psychology and she researches generational differences, which includes uh, speed of development and work values. She's also a professor at San Diego State University where she teaches psychology. So yeah, I think Patrick did a great job here and d- does appear that uh, Professor Twenge has many of the common kind of uh, credibility markers, right? Uh, Graduate degree, works at a university, has has many years of experience. So, you know, I think regardless of whether you're convinced by her argument and claims or not, at least we can take her seriously. And we we think her work um, stands to be be addressed and thought about. And we could also think about the credibility of the source, right? Um, Michael D. writes, However, although the article is provocative and in a credible publication, The Atlantic Magazine, it is not a peer-reviewed nor a scholarly journal presenting dissenting views and different analysis. So really, a really good point by Michael here in terms of um, some, some ways we can think about, you know, what is the source we're reading? I, I know with social media itself, sometimes you just, you just see articles and things shared. And I think people don't always necessarily really pay attention that much to the source itself. Um, the you know the source of this article, The Atlantic, is a kind of interesting source. The Atlantic is, it is a magazine. It's been around for a long time, so those are usually you know something that's been around for a long time that has subscribers is usually an indicator of some credibility. However, it's also as Michael noted, it's not a peer-reviewed journal, meaning it's not there weren't other uh, some of Gene Twenge's colleagues didn't necessarily read her her article and and evaluate it and sort of judge it or, you know, poke holes in some of its evidence. Um, she probably did have an editor, so it's not that she probably, I'm sure she wasn't the only person who read this before it was published, but certainly um, something that might appear in a, a peer-reviewed journal might be seen as a little bit higher just on its face in terms of credibility. Although I will say, you know, the kind of thing that Gene Twenge is doing here, it would be very difficult to do in a scholarly journal. I mean, scholarly journals often the the kind of articles that are published are often much more narrow in scope or specific it's a much easier to have a rock solid um uh article with with compelling evidence when you're when you're focused on more narrow questions gene twenge is trying to bring together a whole bunch of uh, statistics and research and try to make a what we could call a kind of grand claim which we you know we'll, we'll talk about and we should always be a little bit um, skeptical of, but certainly there's also some value in doing so. Um, and so I think the the Atlantic is probably a, a pretty good source in terms of its trustworthiness. Um, but we should always keep in mind that maybe it hasn't, you know, uh, maybe if other professors had read, had read it or co- some of her colleagues had read it, maybe they would have, some of the claims would have been um, uh, reduced or minimized. Maybe they wouldn't have had such a dramatic know, destroyed a generation. I really hated the title, to be honest. It's unfortunately, you know, our, uh, magazines in part because of social, me- social media that want to get articles that are shared widely, they will often utilize these kind of clickbait headlines, right? The term click clickbait refers to a headline that is designed to 
get many clicks um, and, and is often sens sensational or dramatic in its language. All right. Um, so in terms of her, some of some of her weaker arguments in this article, uh, a couple students found some, some had some good critique here. Um, Sierra B wrote, I think one of the weakest arguments she makes was that screen time could affect how kids develop key social skills. In the article, she writes, quote, in the next decade, we may see more adults who know just the right emoji for a situation, but not the right facial, facial expression, end quote. She supplements this idea by saying that today's kids have less face-to-face -face interactions, and thus they have fewer opportunities to practice proper engagement and in, in, interaction with others. I feel as though she skimmed over this portion of the article quickly and didn't have much supporting evidence for this claim. I believe this claim could also be heavily contradicted. So yeah, a good a good point of critique from Sierra here. Yeah, I, you know, this kind of, I don't know, this idea that um, people are, you know, not learning how to use their facial expressions. I mean, yeah, that that is, of, of the claims put, put out by Twenge, some of these were a little bit more, um, more of her own perhaps opinion and, and maybe not as well supported by data or, or strong evidence here. Um, although there are, there are certainly many, many concerns about young people developing kind of face-to-face -face interactions. And certainly even from reading your own posts, many of you wrote about some concerns around that idea, not so much face, the right facial expression, but, you know, um, feeling somewhat isolated or perhaps, you know, worrying that, you know, people are spending too much time on their phones and thus, not developing and practicing the kind of the the art and um, you know uh, yeah getting practice in speaking with other people and being comfortable in those face to face group or one on one environments. Uh, Abigail C writes, one that I found wasn't as strong as the rest, though, was that she said, "quote eighteen year olds now act more like fifteen year olds used to, and fifteen year olds act more like thirteen year olds." which I feel is the opposite nowadays. I know this article was written only a few years ago, but on social media, it's almost impossible to tell most girls age because everyone is just trying to act way older than they actually are, mostly for attention from boys. Yeah, it's kind of, I thought this was an interesting comment from Abigail. Um, I mean, I can't, I'm not going to speak directly to this. Um, I don't follow many teenagers on, on Instagram, but yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting that there is this parallel common a common point or concern that people talk about, about the way that young people today, both young boys and young, both young girls and young boys, actually, I think there's sometimes concerns about uh, over sexualization or, you know, people dressing or acting or using language that is, that is much more adult or being exposed to topics that are much more adult. And certainly the internet plays a big role with that. Um, so yeah, kind of a, an interesting, I suppose, you know, there's some, there, you know, dressing, dressing or using language or acting as a someone who is older than you is maybe not necessarily the same thing as, as sort of mental maturity, right? Um, you know, yeah, you could have a 13-year-old dressing like a 18 or 20-year-old, but that doesn't certainly mean that they have, a, you know, a 20-year-old's uh, maturation level. But I think this still, I think Abigail's point is still, is still valuable. I think it is, a, is, it is worth keeping in mind. Let's see. Rachel C. writes, I feel that having constant access to the internet, um, oh, just this is in terms of, I wanted to mention, quite a few of you wrote about 
Although there were many of you who were in agreement with Twenge about many of her arguments, there was some pushback. Some students wrote, uh, many of you wrote about positive impacts of social media. And one, one that I thought I would highlight was from Rachel C., who writes, I feel that having constant access to the internet, although it may not be what is seen as, quote, normal, unquote, to millennials, has shaped my generation towards more opportunities of connecting and socializing with others, even if it is over the phone at first. For example, most of the friends I currently have here at UNH I met over the internet prior to coming to campus. Yeah, this is a really great example of how, although, sure, there's lots and lots of concerns about, yes, you know, social media addiction and uh, mental health connected to use of phones on this and maybe the, you know, the lack of socialization that could happen if people spent too much time online. On the flip side, yeah, these tools can be used to create real good and lasting friendships and provide people, especially people leaving their homes and going to new places like going to college or moving to a new place to start a job. Yeah, you can use social media. And I've done that so much myself. You know, I've moved, ooh, I've moved to many places in my in my teens, 20s and 30s. I've moved quite around uh, into different states, different countries. And I've always used the internet as a way to qu- very quickly acclimate and connect with similar people in whatever community I, I'm landing in. So a really great point from Rachel here. Okay, I'm going to go through um, just a couple A couple of the, I tried to identify some of the points that she made that students seem to really resonate with or found to be very strong arguments. So let's go through a couple of those. All right, I think one that um, came up a lot was this idea of loneliness and, you know, the sense of fear of missing out or what's sometimes called FOMO as, a, as an acronym. So Brooke S. writes, Some of the stronger points the author has made were teens feeling lonely due to being on their phones. Quote, girls use social media more often, giving them additional opportunities to feel excluded and lonely when they see their friends or classmates getting together without them, end quote. I felt that this data has jumped the the most from before smartphones to now. I also believe it to be true for me and many of my peers. I have felt loneliness due to social media and smartphones. Yeah, quite a few students actually wrote about a feeling of loneliness um, as connected to their social media use. And I don't, you know, I certainly anecdotally can't say, um, I, I really don't know if, the, if it's worse for, for male or female students um, or what. But yeah, perhaps there is some, I mean, I have read some, there is some research on gender differences and in terms of this and maybe... Um, maybe um, female students or female identifying students are are more maybe spending more time on apps like Instagram or apps where they're seeing other other people doing things maybe there's that greater sense of FOMO perhaps I don't know if, if, if there's it does seem like there might be some some meaningful difference there so a really thoughtful point from Brooke um, Maya S writes one thing that resonates um, one thing that one thing that, oops, sorry, must, must be a typo. One thing that resonates the most with from Twenge's article was feeling left out in terms of social media. This is because on apps like Instagram, people only show the best of themselves. They post when they're hanging out on a beach in Mexico while I'm looking at the post on my couch from my family's living room. I think everyone's had this experience in some degree. Uh, the, she writes, the fear, of, the fear of missing out is real and it's not fun. This is why spending a lot of time on these apps while not going many places can make the app sad and frustrating. 
Yeah, I found, you know, both Brooke and Maya's comments are both, I, th I think, really valuable and reflect a lot of people's experience. I, I can't help but think about the pandemic, right? I mean, these things were already existing before the pandemic, but now we're, you know, so many of us are truly stuck in our homes and uh, really that that sense of FOMO or fear of missing out or a sense of loneliness can, is only exacerbated. Samantha G. Um, wrote about some of the idea around addiction to phones, right? Samantha wrote, writes, I, as well as most of my friends, feel very addicted to my phone. It's, besides, it's, it's beside me at all times, and if not, I panic. I check my phone first thing in the morning, watch TikTok until I fall asleep, and even have a hard time putting it aside during classes without having the constant urge to check it. As a matter of fact, my parents' my parents' ideal form of, quote, punishment, unquote, um, starting from around the age of 10 for any time I did something wrong was to take my phone away, which works well enough to pre prevent me from doing anything they don't want me doing. I noticed negative impacts on my mental health and a lot more sleep deprivation the more the more time I spend on my phone, especially on social media. Yeah, this I, I see this, I hear this from students a lot, and I feel some of this myself. I mean, absolutely. You know, uh, so many people today just you know, especially younger folks, they they roll over, maybe the phone's in their bed with them, as sort of Gene Twenge wrote about, they roll over, you know, first they do is wake up and they're plugged right into Instagram. Um, you know, that's, I don't know, it's probably, I mean, it's I always get a little uncomfortable making value judgments here, but it's probably not the healthiest thing to just immediately plug right in into the really sort of intense, visually intense and informationally rich world of social media. Um, or certainly we know going to bed, there is a lot of good research on this in terms of, um, having, using screens and, you know, the, the kind of stimulation in your brain from social media, which are designed to be kind of addictive and, and very stimulating. Yeah. I mean, clearly using that in the hour or two before you try to sleep is, is not a good way to have a, a good quality of sleep. And, you know, I think, I think many of you know this, but it's still, you know, it's still a big, it's a big issue for many people, not just young people, many people of all ages struggle with this. I do in, in some respects, you know, my parents do. I mean, I know myself, I use all sorts of tricks to, on my phone, I have timers, right? I do have Instagram, but I, I keep a, I keep a 30 minute timer. So I can't use it for more than 30 minutes per day, which I even think is kind of a lot. But as many of you know, 30 minutes on Instagram can go by very quickly. Um, so yeah, most of my social media accounts, I just, I have, I have uh, wellness timers on so that once I use them for too long, they get locked and I just don't use them again. That usually works. Um, although certainly I've been guilty of going around those timers, but that's one, one thing that, um, many people have started to use. Yeah. Quite a few students also wrote about, you know, just generally, I'd say that the, the, the point from twins that resonated the most, most with students was the sense of mental health and depression and anxiety as related to social media and smartphones. And this is truly a very difficult and tricky subject matter to talk about in terms of causation, which we'll get to in a minute. We'll get to this idea of correlation and causation, which is really important here, but I'm going to hold on that for a second. Um, let's get a, a couple more student comments here. So um, Gwendolyn writes, eighth graders who spend who, who spend 10 or more hours a week on social media are 56% more likely to say they're unhappy than those who devote less time to social media. This quote was disheartening to hear, but it is very true. When I spend the whole day on my phone, I don't feel good about myself mentally versus when I'm active and hanging out with friends, I feel much happier. 
kids in our generation really need to realize that. Yeah, this is just really well put by Gwendolyn here. I think, again, I can't think about, I can't stop thinking about this pandemic and it's took what, what perhaps was already a, a difficult situation and, and really made it so much more challenging because even if you want to get out and hang out with your friends, it's very difficult for many people to do that today. Um, yeah, very perceptive here. Uh, Josh M writes, I've even seen my mood and overall happiness be affected by how much time I spend on screens and social media sites. There are obviously positives to having tons of opportunities and information at your fingertips, but like everything else, there will be a cultural, uh, a cultural correction to the screen time phenomenon. Also, being the first generation to be totally entrenched in the social media world, we don't know what society was like before they existed. This makes it challenging to know what a happy medium should look like in terms of communication with and without cell phones. I really love this comment from Josh. It really gets to, you know, this sort of uh, this sort of old uh, philosophical idea. Um, sometimes a way I've heard this described is, you know, um, this idea of a fish in the ocean, right? That, you know, fish who are swimming in the ocean, they don't know they're in water, right? They're just in they're just in the ocean and water would be the last thing they would ever notice because it totally permeates and, and surrounds them. And they, there's no way for them to get out of the water and experience and to actually look back down and be like, oh, I was in water, right? This is, I think, a way to think about, you know, growing up at a time where it's very, how, how could you know what it was like without before, you know, the time before smartphones and social media? Certainly you can talk to your parents or older, older folks who do remember that. Um, but I think it makes it difficult for people to even figure out like what, what is an appropriate amount of time? What is a healthy way of using these platforms? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know. So I, I do encourage you, you know, to, to think about these questions myself. I, I find I'm a little bit in between. I mean, I, social media became popular when I was in college. So I had, I had sort of half my life before social media and half my life after social media so far. So I do remember certainly what it was like before. Um, although I got, I've, I've had the internet uh, since a pretty young age. I got the internet in, I think, 1996 or 1995. Um, I think I was only about uh, 10 years old at that point. Um, but uh, yeah, really, really thoughtful comment, Josh. Lindsay H. writes, Twenge goes on to explain the correlation between poor mental health and phone usage, which has a very clear correlation. If you have never turned, turned your phone on in uh, airplane mode for 24 hours, I highly recommend you try it, although it is a very hard thing to follow through with. Not only did this help me completely clear my mind, but it also made me feel like a whole new person in just 24 hours. That is a really thoughtful point and a good recommendation from Lindsay. I mean, I always recommend the students try this. Um, yeah, just turning your phone completely off. I mean, I do this a lot. I would say at least at least one day per week, I'll turn, I'll just turn my phone off. I'll stick it in a drawer for half the day if I'm going on a hike or, or if I'm trying to work, yeah, sometimes uh, you have to take a very strong action. But it's a good, even if you just do it every once in a while, it's a good way to check in, to provide yourself with that self-reflection, to be able to see, okay, what was it? What, how, do, how do I feel? Do I feel less panicky? Do I feel less anxious? Um, do I feel calmer? You know, what, what, what things can I carry from that experience into my more daily life? Okay. So I think now let's, let's get to this idea of, of um, correlation and causality here, because I think this is a really useful tool set to use. And we're going to talk about this a lot this semester. 
when it comes to evaluating research on media and media effects. So um, Dick M writes, if her thesis is, quote, increased use of cell phones and social media causes increased unhappiness, end quote, then she does not support it in her article. It seems to me that she would like us to believe this thesis, though she does not state it. If, on the other hand, her thesis is there is a high correlation between increased use of cell phones and increased unhappiness, then she's on solid ground. I just, I love this, this, this comment from, from Dick is really insightful here. You know, Dick is employing in a very effective and accurate way this, this, tool, this tool that we'll, we'll call correlation and causality. And let me, let me kind of walk you through that. So the word correlation really just refers to an observed relationship between any given set of variables. Um, so, so yeah, you know, you, um, you know, you could say, uh, you know, a, a correlation would be, I don't know, <laughs> I'm sort of scratching for an example here. I guess, let me give you the, the classic example is, um, of a, of a kind of, of a way to think about this is that a person observes that in the summertime, there is more, people eat more ice cream and there's also more protests, Right. And so there's a correlation, right? There's two variables. You see the increasing consumption of ice cream in the summertime, and you also see a increasing amount of pro, uh, street protests, right? And so then someone says, okay, we see that these variables A and B, street protests and ice cream consumption, are both going up at the same rate at the same time. So maybe A causes B. So they make a causal claim about a correlative set of data, basically saying that, Eating ice cream causes people to protest, which obviously this is a silly example, but that's on purpose. Um, and so the point here is that just because you see a correlation doesn't mean that you can make a causal claim that either either variable is causing the other or the change in either variable is causing the change in the other. So in this example, of course, it's not, you know, it's not um, it's not eating ice cream that's causing more protests. It's weather, right, or heat. We know that certainly when it's more hot, people eat more ice cream. And also when it's warmer or more hot, uh, people do tend to protest more. It's kind of a strange example, but this is one that's often given when explaining this idea of correlation and causality. So let's come back to this, this example with twins, right? So um, let's talk through this correlative claim that she seems to be making. So twinge is basically arguing that what we would, what we would call a variable A, that would be smartphone or social media use, is causing um, variable B, which could be, you know, men declining mental health or depression. Um, you know, we could, and, she, and she's actually saying that variable A is causing many different effects, right? Um, but the point is that she's basically, based on correlative data, right, that she's noticing a change in increasing use of smartphones, social media with an increasing rate of depression or an increasing rate of unhappiness or you know, um, feelings of loneliness, right? That she's making these, basically making these, it's a little unclear. I mean, she, she does mention correlation causality in her article. She's, she's aware of being careful here. So she's not exactly saying that they're causing them 100%, but she's implying that pretty strongly in her article. And so the first thing we do when testing a causal claim based on, based on a, a correlation is to uh, reverse the causal arrow. So in this case, could it be that actually it's not A causing B, but could B be causing A? That is, instead of 
is is increasing smartphone use causing greater rates of increasing rates of depression? Could it be that people who are having anxiety or depression increase for any reason, then that's causing them to seek out their phones more to, or to use their phones. It kind of makes sense in it, almost a logical way, right? It could be that if you feel anxious or depressed, you're going to spend more time on your phone. So in that case, it's not necessarily true that the phone is causing that thing for you, but that actually the phone may be an outlet. It may be the, the increased, um, the increased amount of anxiety or depression is causing you to spend more time on social media or your phone perhaps, right? It actually makes sense if you're, if you're having uh, really, if, if things are going really well for you, maybe you're very busy and socializing and stuff, you maybe just aren't on your phone all that much. First, so if you're stuck inside and that's kind of what you're doing with a big part of your day. Um, again, but we still can't perfectly prove that that B is causing A, but the point is that we're already complicating this claim, right? That we're not sure. It could be that A is causing B, but B could also be causing A, or it could be a complex relationship where, you know, maybe um, maybe you're you're starting to feel depressed, so you which is variable B, and then you're using your phone more, which is A, but then maybe using your phone more is actually worsening your depression, which maybe your depression was initially caused by some, some, something else, a situation in your life, you know, something difficult happening, et cetera, et cetera, um, some, some kind of biological mix. You know, we, we are not equipped to go into the, the, that, the medical side around mental health, certainly, and I'm certainly not, um, but it could be that, you know, um, yeah, you maybe something else is is causing someone to to feel more anxious, depressed, and then they seek out their their phones more. But then using that phone is making them more anxious, depressed. So there's sort of a a cyclical relationship that you know B causes A, but then A causes more of B, then B causes more of A, then A causes more of B, and it sort of you end up into a kind of downward spiral. So that could be more of a complex relationship. Um, the other thing we want to do when we encounter causal claims based on correlative data is we need to think about maybe there are there alternative variables here that are causing both A and B, right? So if we if we hold to A being smartphone use and B being um, uh, depression or anxiety, maybe it's other things. Maybe things like, maybe big things that are hard to even grasp, like, you know, big changes to the, the U.S. economy, right? I mean, one of the big changes in the last 20 or 30 years is just the change in the economy. There's you know, we've had both a, the 2008 financial crisis and now there's another major, major, major financial crisis with the pandemic. And even even aside from those economic crises, you know, the types of jobs that are available are very different. There's less economic stability. Um, many of the former careers that you could create a family based on are gone. Um, there's yeah, there's less stability, less benefits. Um, a lot a lot of, you know, we can't go into all that now, but, you know, there's been a lot of economic upheaval, you know, the, yeah, the minimum wage hasn't increased in, in a decade, you know, certainly maybe just the changes to the economy, right? The material basis for people's lives has, has gotten worse, which is causing people to both feel more, more anxious or depressed about the future or themselves, as well as be more likely to use their, their phones. They have more time, etc. Uh, you know, it could be, and I think, I think um, Michael D wrote about this a little bit. It could be a decline in a sense of community or belonging, right? There is good research on the declining attendance to social clubs like, um, yeah, Boy Scouts or PTA meetings or Lions Clubs or um, as well as declining rates of religious attendance. You know, 
all the, all these different things that provided people with structured social interaction and social time, a lot of those have declined. Uh, there's a great book about this that was published 20 years ago called Bowling Alone by um, Robert Putman, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long book, but it's a great book that, that documents really the, the, wide, the wide-scale decline in, in what he calls social capital or the, 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 the um, richness that people get, not from money, but from socializing with other people. A really, a really great book. Could also be, you know, changes in parenting. You know, maybe parents are, because of the economy, maybe they're working more, maybe there's just different, different parenting styles, uh, maybe there's more stress at home overall than in past generations. It's, it's really hard to say. The point is that, you know, we could think of many other variables that might also be causing an increase in social media use and smartphones and, and an increasing an increased use and increasing rates of anxiety or depression or many other um, things that Twinge talks about. So the point is that the point is sort of to really complicate and try to try to avoid, you know, I think one of the overall criticisms that I think we can make about this article is that although there does seem to be some important concerns raised about the widespread use of smartphones and social media, and many of you are writing in support of that, I think we also just need to be careful about attributing all of these changes to to smartphones. I mean, usually it's not so simple as one variable, one thing is causing all these other changes. Um, see, a lot to think about. All right, so to finish up with, I wanted to think about her real overall thesis, because, you know, she's she's arguing that there are these, yeah, the, you know, increasing rates of anxiety, depression, but she's, she's, she's basically, in her thesis, right, she's basically arguing that, that um, young people are not socializing correctly, that they're kind of failing to become adequate adults, right? And, you know, it's interesting because I'm not sure I, I'm convinced by that. I think even if we take that all her all of her statistics are, are right, um, and, you know, she is truly proving, let's say that we'll take it, take it to fact that, you know, maybe smartphone use, smartphone use is really causing these changes or, or something like that, or, or um, that, that there really is this um, delayed maturation or delayed socialization into independent or autonomous adults. Um, you know, that's not a completely new phenomenon by any means, right? Um, there's there's just a long history of social or public anxiety around new technologies in youth. You know, I'm a millennial and yeah, there were many of these same concerns were said of my generation as well. Um, similar similar concerns about Generation X before. Um, I think one way to think about this is in the field of psychology, and, and I'm not a psychologist, so I can only speak about this in a very general way. But as I've read, um, around the year 2002 or so, so about 18, 19 years ago, um, in psychology, there emerged a kind of general consensus um, based on many years of research that actually, yeah, at that, in, in sort of the 2002 uh, today's in 2002, that today's youth or then youths at that point were maturing slower than their predecessors. And this new, this new term started to catch on called emerging adulthood or emergent adulthood. And basically emerging adulthood refers to a period, I think, I believe, again, don't quote me because I, I, again, I'm not a psychologist, but as I've read, I believe it refers to roughly the time period between about 18 years old and about the late 20s where people are not sort of psychologically considered fully, fully adults, but are not teenagers either, right? And, and you know, some of that 
clearly must have had something to do with some of the change in, in economy. Right? I mean, we know there's lots of interesting data here. You know, for example, people are are definitely having kids at a at a much older age. The average age of of when of when women give birth to children has just been getting older and older and older over the years. Although obviously there might be some biological limits to that. We haven't quite seemed to hit that limit yet, at least in terms of the average. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's kind of, I think we should pump the brakes a little bit on some of the panic, at least in terms of this idea that Twinge is implying that young people may not be, be may, may fail to become autonomous adults. I mean, my general sense is that probably it's true that people are socializing or becoming full adults at a slower pace, but that's not totally new, right? That's been true for a while. And, you know, also, is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, is it, a, you know, she says, again, just to go back to, you know, that quote she has, you know, that 18 year olds now act more like 15 year olds and 15 year olds act more like 13 year olds. I mean, there are some obvious implications for that, especially legally what 18 year olds can do. But I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know if she's, I mean, that may be true. It may not be true. But if it is true, that still doesn't mean that, you know, people won't become, eventually become fully mature autonomous adults, right? So yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, that's worth keeping in mind. So yeah, my own general take is that, is that I think, based on your writing, based on my own, my own read of this, I think clearly Twenge work struck, strikes a chord when it comes to mental health. And there's, I think there's a lot of common sense and legitimate concerns around mental health and smartphone and social media use. Um, but as for her kind of failure to launch argument, this idea that young people are going to fail to socialize prop- properly, that's a, I'm, I don't personally buy that fully. I, I need to, I need to be much more convinced that that's true. Um, so maybe, maybe there's some, some really value we can get out of this article, but maybe perhaps um, not to the point where we just throw up our hands and sort of say, oh, you know, everything's ruined. The, the young kids these days, you know, they'll, they'll never make it right. That's, that's a common thing that's been said about many, many generations. All right, I'm going to uh, I'm going to stop it here. This has been a uh, I've really enjoyed um, going through your comments. I hope you found this helpful or interesting. Um, I will try to publish one of these episodes each week, but not every week I'll always be able to. It really will depend on what the assignments are and what you'll be writing about. But I look forward to reading your next posts and um, have a great weekend and great next week and all that stuff. So yeah, take care and be healthy and watch that social media use.